Hello out there in podcast land, Kevin McDonald here, executive producer at New Mexico PBS and your host for this podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, August 27th, 2021. It has been a wild and woolly week here for us. I hope your week has been good and that everyone in your uh, circle is doing well and staying healthy. We have got a lot of conversation about, again, the continued surge of the Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus, and uh, that's where we're going to kick things off in this episode with our line opinion panelists. want to let you know who we've got on board with us this week. Uh, We have uh, regular former state senator D.D. Feldman. Also, we have Dan Boyd, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal, And we welcome back to the show Michael Bird, a public health expert. He was a regular with us before a brief stint in California, but we're thrilled he's back in New Mexico and available to have these important conversations with us. He's a perfect one to have on when you're talking about COVID-19 and the impacts of the surge of the Delta variant. And uh, we have already seen a new legal challenge to the governor's latest attempts to curb the surge that we know is really pushing our hospitals to the max. But the governor's latest approach was uh, vaccine uh, mandates for public health workers, also for Uh, state workers. We know that's been in place for a while, but also she uh, issued a requirement for vaccines at the state fair with just a few exceptions. And lawsuit was almost immediately filed uh, by two individuals. One is a nurse and one is a parent of someone who was going to be taking animals to the state fair uh, here in just a couple of weeks. So we wanted to find out what the line panelists think about this latest approach, which was partly based on the fact that uh, vaccine was not fully FDA approved, although this week the Pfizer vaccine did get that full approval. So lots to dive into right here. Let's jump right into it. We'll turn it over to host Gene Grant. It took no time at all for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's latest public health order to come under legal challenge. Two women have filed a lawsuit in U.S. District Court challenging the constitutionality of Governor Lujan Grisham's vaccine mandate for certain workers. We'll get into that in a second. In light of the recent surge of COVID-19 cases tied to the Delta variant, here to discuss the pandemic pushback are this week's line panelists, starting with line regular and former state senator Dee Dee Feldman's with us. We also welcome back our, to our virtual roundtable Dan Boyd, Capitol Bureau Chief at the Albuquerque Journal. And we're super thrilled to welcome back Mago Bird, fresh off a short relocation stint on the West Coast. He's also a public health consultant, so glad to have you back, Michael, honestly. Now, Dan, let me start with you. The lawsuit hinges in part on the fact that the plaintiffs say the vaccine has now been fully approved by the FDA, but just this week, the FDA has done just that with the Pfizer vaccine, as we all know. What impact does that decision have on this litigation? Yeah, I think that's yet to be seen. I would certainly uh, think that would undercut one of their their main claims that this is an experimental vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, the lawsuit didn't come as a big surprise to me. I mean, we've seen that in other states, kind of similar lawsuits. Um, one of the plaintiffs in the New Mexico case is, is a healthcare worker right. uh, in Albuquerque, and these, that was one of the occupations kind of targeted by this vaccine mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one was a, a mother of children who are participating in the state fair. 
The governor also said that attending the state fair, you'll have to show a proof of vaccination mm-hmm. with a few uh, allowable exemptions. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this all plays out kind of in the courts. Uh, and, and certainly as well, I think, to see in the healthcare industry what kind of impact it has as far as um, folks either getting vaccinated and complying or maybe some of them, you know, losing their jobs or leaving their jobs over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, Dan mentioned one of the plaintiffs is a registered nurse, um, Jennifer Blackford. She's a Burnley County resident. She works as a nurse at Press here in Albuquerque. You know, we know that New Mexico is already facing a shortage of healthcare professionals before fighting COVID for a year and a half took a big toll Here's the question. Does the governor run the risk of launching a wave of mass resignations with this vaccine mandate for healthcare workers? Or in your experience as a healthcare person yourself, that's not possible. People are not just going to walk away in mass from these kind of jobs. Which is it in your view? Well, first of all, I think anybody who's working in the healthcare field, um, and as you referenced, Gene, you know, I, 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 I did work in the Santa Fe Indian Hospital on the floor. Mm-hmm. with many nurses in the past and um have found them um you know physicians and every the whole healthcare team are really critical but i i you know i have to say that um, i have a lot of respect for nurses both in the hospital and public health nurses as well mm-hmm. and it just seems to me that there's a real contradiction if you if we are there to to promote the health and meet the needs of patients then we really have a duty and an obligation, both personally and professionally, to do everything we can to ensure those patients' safety. Mm-hmm. And um, and so um, I really have an issue with with someone taking that position who considers them to be themselves to be a healthcare provider, mm-hmm. be it a nurse or anyone else. Um, I think that um, if you're in healthcare, you're there to meet the needs of the patients in the in the community, mm-hmm. and and first and foremost to protect them. And if you're not willing to do that, then I think you, you may be in the wrong profession. I'm sorry that. Uh, let me ask you, let me follow up with this. Uh, David Scrace, who's, you know, the interim health secretary here for New Mexico. He says that 90% of nurses, uh, hospital nurses are vaccinated already. The Nurses Association doesn't have a problem with this. It, it, can these folks, these last 10% folks get squeezed enough to just kind of get there? Is it a small enough group in your view? Well, I, I you know, Having been out of New Mexico for a bit now, yeah. it's hard for me really to respond to that. I, I, I think, though, here's my own personal thought. My own personal thought is that we, there, there are lessons, again, to be learned from com- other communities. And, and the Native community mm-hmm. has the highest COVID rate. Um, um, it, I mean, have vaccination, highest vaccination rate of any community of color of any population in the state, according to the CDC in a report last week. So I, it just seems to me that um, there are communities that recognize that, yes, the rights of individuals are important, mm-hmm. but the collective good, the tribal good, the larger community, we really have an obligation. And maybe it's because of the history of Native people in this country and, and all the diseases that they've been subject to, which came from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they recognize in a very different way, in a collective way, that you have to respond immediately. And, and the tribal leadership has, has provided great leadership in terms of p- taking public health practices, adopting them, and implementing the, with within their own communities. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, there's some lessons to be learned, and I think some people really need to have some honest conversations with themselves about who are they, who do they serve? Are you serving yourself? Are you serving 
your family? Are you serving your community? And I think that that's a question that many people need to begin to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. Senator, the other plaintiff in the lawsuit is upset that the new vaccine mandate for entry to the state fair uh, she's a county extension agent and a mom of two girls with animals entered into competition at the state fair. The governor has made a point, you know, of trying to lead by example with vaccine mandates. But was this a step too far given the last minute notice on this? Well, uh, Gene, I think that uh, really uh, the state fair is one of the few super spreader events that the state government has control of. It doesn't have control of the balloon fiesta. Mm -hmm. uh, it do doesn't have control of Indian market. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this was, uh, in my view, not a step too far. And um, I think that, um, you know, they ought to make some accommodations, make some of those livestock events outdoors. But uh, in general, it's not a step too far uh, to ask um, adults uh, and teenagers to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some young children for whom the vaccination is not possible. Right. Uh, and uh, I assume that they will probably be accommodated, uh, but I don't know. Um, and, and Senator, but, I, I hear your point loud and clear here, but I think it's a timing issue as well. Uh, there's a lot of folks I've talked to from that part of the state that feel like the governor did this on purpose, like this is some kind of payback to not give enough run-up time here to get these kids vaccinated. Is that a yeah. step too far, feeling that way? Yes, I think that is a step too far. Mm -hmm. I think that that step too far um, in terms of believing that the governor is a tyrant and is doing things arbitrarily. But, but, could, the, but could the timing have been better? Yes, the timing could have been better, but the, the virus is uh, requires uh, you know, uh, instantaneous decisions because it's changing and mutating uh, on a daily and weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So you have to respond. I mean, I think if you are have the interests of the entire population uh, at heart, you do have to respond and make some of these controversial decisions. Mm -hmm. But I think the um, the reaction of some of the uh, anti-vaxxers um, has gone too far itself as I mean Blair Dunn who is the lawyer for these folks has compared uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham to a tyrant who is putting people in concentration camps mm -hmm. uh, tantamount to a Japanese internment I think that's insulting it is insulting. I think that's really insulting mm -hmm. to Japanese people mm -hmm. and to others who have taken the vaccination in good faith mm -hmm. I appreciate you getting that last bit in there. It, it, that, it is insulting. There's no other way to say that. Uh, Dan, interestingly, uh, oh, I'm sorry, let me go to something else. The legal challenges to the governor's authority regarding public health orders has been upheld time and time again in state court, as you and others at your paper have reported, and in federal court, even as the Supreme Court has refused to hear suits against the vaccine requirement for students in Indiana. Why would this be any different this time? Another court challenge. I, I think... Uh Likelihood. I mean, you never want to wager on the, the court system, but but I think, um, you know, I would think there's a good chance that the governor's authority here is is upheld. Mm -hmm. um, you know, other governors have also issued kind of these targeted vaccine mandates, especially now with uh, Presbyterian and other private employers also adopting their own right. vaccine policies. I mean, I, it seems pretty well, well established. I'm no lawyer, but that, um, you know, the private employers can um, set these policies for their employees. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's a little different when it's the state doing that. Um, 
and I do think there's, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. I, I think I can say that there wasn't even uh, total agreement within the, the governor's office and the governor's cabinet on some of these decisions. I mean, these are hard decisions. There's uh, either way. I think there's going to be pros and cons and, and pushback, you know, no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. Hey, Michael, in the past week, we've seen protests across the state against max and masks and vaccine mandates. And quite noisily, some local church leaders pretty vocal in their intentions to not enforce mask mandates during weekly service. Does the governor have any real power or sway in terms of the mask enforcement at this point? Is it going to take more monetary fines maybe to make her point? Or what, what can she do about place, uh, people who are willing to have folks gather and just not do what she wants them to do? Yeah, well, I, th I think that, you know, that... I... What I have to reflect on is my old catechism sure. class, and I was probably a dropout of anything else. But um, but one thing one thing I do recall and do remember was, am I not my brother's keeper? Mm -hmm. And and I know for myself, and I don't speak for anyone but myself. I know for myself, I have a duty and an obligation to protect everyone, those those who are close to me and who are I love and are dear as well as anyone else who could 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 suffer death or, or long-term consequences because of because of covid and so i i just it's really hard for me to understand how churches could take a position some churches mm -hmm. because it's not mm -hmm. all right but some churches would take this position that it somehow is an imposition upon them mm -hmm. i think that there's a there, there needs to be a real conversation in those churches and across churches, I think, about what do we value? There's a lot of conversation about valuing human life. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conversation about when does life begin and when does it end? Well, we also need to have a conversation about the sacredness of life and protecting all life. And that would be my response. Good points there. That's all the time we have this week for that discussion. Still to come this week on The Line, New Mexico opens its arms to Afghan refugees. And next up for The Line opinion panel, other big news of the week. We know that there are at least uh, a few Afghan refugees that have already been moved here to New Mexico on part of Fort Bliss, which is actually based in Texas, but crosses over into to New Mexico. And at the same time, we know that Governor Michelle Luan Grisham and House Speaker Brian Egolf, other Democratic leaders, sent a letter to the president this week uh, letting them know that we were, as a state, uh, welcoming with open arms Afghan refugees. We actually have a resettlement program in New Mexico already, and have already resettled or worked with a handful of people just in the last year. But we know what we're facing now after the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan is a much bigger number. And just today we are hearing that uh, there will be Afghan refugees housed at Holloman Air Force Base down by Alamogordo. Uh, but all of this, of course, leads to a lot of questions in terms of resources, how much capacity we have as a state. Um, how those vaccine mandates play into all of this. So lots to discuss here, and we want to send it right back over to our line opinion panelist and host, Gene Grant. Afghan refugees have begun arriving into Mexico this week after fleeing their homeland during the recent Taliban takeover. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and Speaker of the House Brian Egolf sent a letter to President Biden last week 
indicating our state is waiting with open arms to help those refugees. Mobilization efforts are underway, and at least some of the Afghans are already being housed on a part of Fort Bliss Army Base that is located, as you know, in southern New Mexico. And, and Senator, other states have also indicated their willingness to house these refugees. But do you expect any political dust up from this move? I don't know. I, I would doubt it. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's widespread sympathy for Afghan refugees and uh, for getting them out of the country. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a hue and cry from the Afghan community here in New Mexico, which, which in, includes several hundreds that have already come here from previous waves That's right. uh, to extend the deadline, to extend the deadline beyond August 31st. And I think that's kind of a political point, perhaps, because mm -hmm. you, you can see the reason why Biden might want to end it uh, August, uh, August 31st. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that New Mexicans have been friendly to uh, refugees like this uh, yep. from Iraq. There's an Iraqi community here mm -hmm. in Albuquerque. And uh, there, there was a rally for, uh, to support Afghan refugees on Civic Plaza about a week ago. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are Lutheran Family Services, there are programs um, that are set up. The city now has a uh, refugee office that is uh, giving out advice and telling the huge number of people who have come forward and saying, we would be willing to help. Right. We would be willing to house uh, refugees. It's really kind of heartwarming. Mm -hmm. I have to agree. Michael, uh, you know, Governor Lujan Grisham and Speaker Egoff in their letter to President Biden mentioned New Mexico's cultural diversity and history of welcoming refugees, as Senator just mentioned, from around the world. We actually even have a refugee resettlement program, of course, administered by the Human Services Department as well. And Dan, you reported earlier this week the state already has resettled a handful of Afghan refugees over the last year. That was interesting. I'll talk about that if you would. Yeah, it's a small number. I was surprised mm -hmm. to see those numbers, too. I mean, I think it was only uh, a half dozen or so Afghan refugees, but have already been resettled here in, in the last year. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think clearly that program is up and running. That will probably help with this effort. Um, today, uh, President Biden is going to be meeting with some governors. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is going to be taking part in that call. So clearly kind mm -hmm. of uh, wheels are in motion. We don't have a lot of details on, on yet as far as numbers and exactly where, things like that. Uh, I will say maybe I'm a little more cynical than uh, Senator Feldman, but I, I do see this also having some political overtones. Uh, already uh, Congresswoman Yvette Harrell has expressed concern about making sure American citizens in Afghanistan are kind of brought back before refugees are resettled. So wow. uh, I could see you know some of those kind of debates uh, heating up over the coming weeks, but mm -hmm. certainly there does seem to also be kind of a uh, you know, genuine desire to, to help these people in a time of need. Mm, interesting points there. Uh, Michael Byrd, uh, details and direction from the federal government a little slim at this point. No one knows for sure how long the resettlement will take, as Dan sort of hinted at there. What's our capacity for this really as a state? When you really think about it, can we, can we accept uh, thousands and five figures, you know, 10,000 and more? Is it just 5,000, 500? Mm -hmm. how, how do we assess that? Well, I'm I think one of the things, one way of assessing it would be looking at every state, every state's capacity to, mm -hmm. to um, you know, um, to handle that. But I think, you know, on a larger scale in terms of it, this is not just the United States issue. I mean, there are many other nations who were involved in, in Afghanistan. And, and in fact, those nations also have a duty and an obligation 
to 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 protect and and welcome um, these refugees. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, not only, this country is not only made up of refugees, but but immigrants. And some of the first uh, refugees were probably the pilgrims. So uh, mm-hmm. there is a, there is some from from a historical perspective, we all need to recognize that there there is a history in this nation of welcoming people, not always in the way that we should, but but given our military and economic involvement in Afghanistan, I really think um, I, I guess I'm of the position I'm of the opinion that goes back to you broke it, you own it. And we do, mm-hmm. we, we do owe these people um, as much as we cost, possibly can provide. Um, we, 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 we have had it, those of us who remember Vietnam and, and re- can reflect upon that. Um, and there's, there's some lessons to be learned from that. And I'm not sure we've learned all of us lessons that came out of that. Right. But we do need to do as much as we can, as well as we can, for those people who fought with us, for us, and, and many who died for with us. I appreciate that so much. You know, some of the numbers are interesting. This is the largest U.S. military removal of non-combatants since 20,000 Americans and a volcano eruption in the Philippines in 91. I remember that. And Michael mentions uh, uh, Senator Feldman, Vietnam. We, we hustled 100,000 people out of there in short order <laughs> and uh, much shorter, as a matter of fact. Um, I got I to gotta go back to this idea of how does this complicate the COVID restrictions that the governor's put in place last week, especially in light you know, of her vaccination requirements. Does the governor have a problem on her hands there politically a little bit? Yes, I think COVID does, is a fly in the ointment mm-hmm. and uh, may require um, may require quarantine of some of these folks when they come to the state initially. Yeah. Um, and, and that didn't happen with the Vietnamese uh, resettlement. We didn't have that problem at the time. And we also right. uh, didn't have the political divide that we have now. But remember, um, you know, the whole international district or so many uh, people that live in the international district are indirectly products of the, of the flotillas and of the boat mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and of the Laotian uh, crisis. Uh, that they have come here and they have now become uh, citizens of our city. Uh, in fact, I think the, um, the uh, city's director of refugees said 60,000 uh, people in uh, New Mexico are uh, immigrants or refugees. That's 10%, that's you know, almost 10% of our population. So it will, uh, it will work out yeah. over time, but it will be difficult I- initially. Mm-hmm. Dan, let me uh, jump to you. On the, I'm still on this vaccination kick here a little bit. The governor has acknowledged that there's some room for improvement with vaccinating people seeking asylum or otherwise, uh, you know, migrating. Is there a problem to solve or should the feds be doing this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the governor had indicated uh, at a recent news conference that she had spoken with some federal officials, uh, Homeland Security, about um, about making sure individuals are screened or or tested, you know, when they're, especially with the, the southern border. But I, I think that likely applies as well to these refugees. I mean, I, I do think it's, um, you know, as Didi mentioned, there's ways to to address it. I mean, a quarantine period, um, testing, you know, things like that. I, I don't think it's, um, but I think some of that should come from the federal government um, when we're talking about immigration, things like that. Um, but, you know, knowing how these things work, it probably wouldn't wouldn't be a bad thing for the, for the state to have a plan in place to, 
address some of that as well. That's a good point. Uh, remind folks, we've got, the, as we tape this, we've got the president speaking a little bit later this afternoon on this, and uh, it's gonna be, <laughs> we are working to get more information about the resettlement, certainly. Uh, efforts and how you can help out, including a Facebook Live I did yesterday with Lutheran Family Services mentioned by Senator Feldman. I encourage you to give it a watch. Still to come here on New Mexico in Focus, New Mexico's Dangerous Roads. Sticking with uh, Afghanistan and the refugees for a moment now, on Thursday afternoon, Gene Grant hopped onto Facebook Live to find out some more about the local efforts to help the refugees and just the impacts of the mass exodus of people from Afghanistan uh, that we've seen over the last couple weeks. The images are startling and stick with you, but really point to the desperation so many people have to get out of Afghanistan. And uh, we had a great couple folks to talk to us about that on this Facebook Live. Mullah Akbar is a, a, a refugee or a uh, a migrant from Afghanistan himself and knows having worked in the government in Afghanistan a lot about the situation. He uh, runs market here in Albuquerque. He joined us on this discussion as well as a representative from Lutheran Family Services, which are mo uh, mobilizing right now to try to do what they can to help these families. It is a moving target right now. We're going to get a lot more information um, in the next week or two, I am sure, but we wanted to get caught up on, on the situation and what's going on here locally, and so I want to bring that to you here in a little bit of extra content. So right now, here again, Gene Grant and our special guests. Thank you, Kevin. Hey guys, welcome to a Facebook Live, a very special one, a little bit of a different time and a different day, but we wanted to get to some things here real quick. Uh, about what's happening for Afghan settlement here in New Mexico. As you know, there's a big push across the country to get folks out of Afghan as quickly as possible and get them settled here. New Mexico has a stake in the game. In fact, our governor and Speaker of the House, Brian Egoff, wrote a letter to President Biden saying we are ready and willing. So we welcome Jeff Hall. He's the Economic Development Director for, for, for Economic Development Programs Manager for Lutheran Family Services. Appreciate his time and Mullah Akbar. He is the owner of Cafe Istanbul, one of the uh, better restaurants in Albuquerque, I'll just say, but also a refugee from Afghan, Afghanistan himself, and we'll talk to him in just a little bit. Let's talk to you, Jeff, here real quick. Just a couple of questions. Uh, the public wants to know, basically, the feedback we're getting. How does this all work? When an Afghan refugee comes here, what does Lutheran Family Services then do to get folks settled here in New Mexico? Hey, well, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so we've been resettling refugees and asylees here in Albuquerque and New Mexico at large since 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, and kind of how that looks like is whenever they come here, we greet them at the airport and, and then we're basically assisting them with all of their basic needs from that point on. Mm -hmm. um, that's housing, uh, transportation assistance, linking them with different community resources, all in an effort to help them navigate this new environment that they find themselves in mm -hmm. and ultimately help guide them towards self-sufficiency and, and whatever that means for their situation. Mm -hmm. Jeff, what do most folks come with as a refugee? Is it completely empty-handed? Is there something that folks come in your experience? So 
for the most part, they come with very little, if anything. Um, okay. We see um, refugees coming uh, sometimes with bags of clothes, um, things that they can carry with them to the airport. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, they have very little, if anything at all, that they're able to bring with them. Mm -hmm. And Mullah Akbar, we'll be talking to you about this in a quick second, but I'm curious about the Afghan community that's already here in Albuquerque. Does that make a difference in how uh, your organization resettles folks? Uh, first of all, thanks for having us here. Mm -hmm. um, yes, absolutely. I have been in, uh, you know, communication with the community um, uh, we have here in Albuquerque. Uh, we in fact, have a organization called the Afghan Society of New Mexico mm -hmm. that was established in 1998. And, you know, uh, one of the founders, myself, um, we have, you know, a board of directors. I'm not part of the board of the directors right now, but there are others right now. And we've been having a discussion and kind of a preparing the community to step up uh, as we uh, uh, as we're ready to get uh, more of the uh, Afghan refugees here in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. So I also uh, would like to ask Jeff, you know, if they have uh, any um, need any assistance in terms of, you know, language, in terms of um, other issues they run, they're uh, more than welcome to reach out to me. And I, if I can do it myself, I'll be happy to. If not, I will, you know, find a way to other Afghan community members here to step up and, and do do uh, what we can do, mm -hmm. uh, as we have done in the past in terms of getting stuff ready for them, like, uh, you know, things for the house and clothing for the children for the immediate future until uh, they they kind of uh, uh, settle a little bit, uh, take a, a little uh, breather. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it, a breather. I, I can't imagine after all involved fleeing a country, flying all these thousands of miles, a bit of a breather is, is, is appropriate. Jeff, have you gotten any indication from the federal government just how many Afghan folks are coming to New Mexico specifically at this point? So not at this point in time, I think, as you know, um, there are attempting to still evacuate the 50,000 um, Afghan allies and refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, and most, uh, from my understanding, it, most of them are at uh, Fort Bliss um, and other forts throughout the United States um, going through their background checks. Uh, and as they complete that process, we'll be notified um, where they first prefer to, to resettle. If they have a U.S. tie mm -hmm. and then if not, uh, we'll be able to resettle them here based off of our capacity to do so. What is that capacity uh, now that you mentioned that? How, how many people can we intake uh, comfortably? So it, there's a lot of different factors that go into that. Uh, I think housing being one of the most. So um, we're, we're ready to receive as many as possible, but we don't want to overwhelm uh, not only our organization, but the communities as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I can't answer that right sure. now. With, you know. I, I can understand that. A bit of a sensitive question. I'm, I'm wondering if mental health services are part of the game here, because, uh, you know, as Mullah Akbar just mentioned, I mean, this is a traumatic time. You can't just mm -hmm. plop someone in the United States and expect it to all work out. Are there, are there services in that, in that regard? Yes, and, and thank you for bringing that up. That, that is one of the, the things, the services that we try to provide to clients as they, they come here, because obviously having your mental health in a, in a healthy place mm -hmm. um, 
leads to that self-sufficiency and that that ability to be a productive member in whatever community that you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, we do work with community partners and, and we're so thankful um, that we're able to do so. I, I definitely feel a sense of pride to be a part of this community that is so welcoming. I like that. Um, these allies. Yeah, go ahead and name those partners if, if, if you would be so kind. Who are you working with uh, in this regard? Sure, we, we definitely work with the state, the Human Services Department, uh, the New Mexico Department of Health, mm -hmm. um, community partners throughout the area, such as Catholic Charities, United Way of Central New Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, and individual community members that want to step up and, and want to volunteer not only their time, but monetary donations. And, and what we're asking at this point in time is that if anybody is interested in doing that, um, feel free to go to our website, lfsrn.org, um, and you can either donate there directly, um, or you can sign up to be a volunteer through our online platform. And yeah. as always, you can contact our office. It's 505-933-7032. Uh, um, and please be patient with us. Uh, we are getting a lot of requests to assist while we are available. Um, it might take us some time to get back to you. Not a problem. You guys are running fast and hot over there. Just again for that website, LFSRM, LFSRM.org. And to be able to, now you can actually, did I hear that correctly? You can donate money directly through the site as well? You can. Okay. Okay. Good deal. And we, and we are asking for donations that are um, fiscal monetary donations at this point. Okay. Uh, it's the most flexibility with how we're able to assist uh, you know, the, the incoming allies and Afghans. Before I get back to Mullah Akbar and, and let you go, Jeff, because you're busy, is there a priority on what you might need? Uh, can folk, if, or for, I'm sorry, on a volunteer basis, are there a certain skill sets you're looking for out of volunteers that would have some value to you? So, yeah, you know, as uh, Mr. Akbar mentioned earlier, uh, we definitely need some some language skills to assist. Um, that is the number one priority. Uh, but also, um, people who are flexible, people who are able to drive clients to and fro from different appointments that they may need to take. People that that are are willing to help set up an apartment to to make that home a home before they even come here. Only um, the the type of volunteerism that we're looking for. Oof, it's daunting. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, go ahead, Ma 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 go ahead. Mm -hmm. I was going to uh, uh, let Jeff know, uh, please uh, reach out, uh, reach out to me and, uh, um, and we'll, we'll do what we can. We have, like I said, we have a good amount of community here um, and, and I will coordinate with the current board of the directors of the Afghan Society of New Mexico, as well as reaching out to uh, individuals and asking for their you know, to be compassionate towards other fellow human beings, especially, our, you know, our countrymen coming here from uh, such a terrible situation. So in terms of language, let us know, please. Let us know. See what we can do to assist you in this regard. And we appreciate that very much. Thank you. Jeff, thank you. We're going to let you go in because I know you're busy and we really appreciate your time. I know from visiting with you the other day down there at LFS, it's busy. <laughs> so thank you to Lutheran Family Services. It's wonderful work you're doing. Thank goodness you're doing it. So. We appreciate that. Thanks, Thanks. We'll catch up, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Mula, Thanks, I've, got, I've, I've got to ask, you know, you, you were, you came, when did you come to the United States? Let me just ask you straight out. 
Uh, I came in uh, 1989, sir, okay. uh, back the, during the Afghan and Soviet uh, war. Mm -hmm. uh, I came at the very end of that war, uh, settled uh, back in Northeast, uh, New Hampshire to be exact, uh, and moved out to, uh, move out to New Mexico here 1994, and ever since I have called Albuquerque, New Mexico, my home. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a tough day in Afghanistan right now. As we as we are taping this, we know that U.S. service members have been killed in that explosion outside the airport in Kabul, and of course, obviously, a lot of civilian casualties. Two explosions, as a matter of fact. I, I've just got to ask you, how does in your heart you've seen a lot from your country? I mean, you've just seen a lot. Where's your heart right now about what's going on right now in Afghanistan? To, to be honest, uh, sir, it, it, it really uh, it, it sunk my, uh, 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 my heart when I heard it this morning. I heard it uh, through a friend long before the media knew about it. Uh, a friend of mine who is in the situation where a number of other um, Afghans who honorably served with the U.S. mail and other U.S. Uh, 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 institution in Afghanistan, uh, he called me this morning. He was in the vicinity, was trying to find out if he can get on to the base. So as soon as he, he uh, luckily he was further away from the blast, but he the one he, he uh, called me and said, hey, man, it's a terrible um, explosion here. He said, I don't know the casualties, but it's it's going to be in, in the, you know, in the tens, if not thousands, it's because it's this huge crowd of people. So it. when I heard that, honestly, my, my heart, my leg, my, my hands were start shaking. You're like, you know, how, how much can these people endure? How much on daily basis, on hourly basis? So right. uh, extremely sad, extremely heartbroken. Do you feel Americans understand just how difficult the Taliban is? Do you feel like we know deeply over here or is there something missing in our understanding as far as you're concerned? Well, if I, if I be frank with you, sir, I work for our government for 10 years as a diplomat, mm -hmm. uh, you know, traveled back and forth to Afghanistan and I work for the U.S. Embassy. Mm -hmm. Based on, you know, that 10 years of experience that I know and knowing, you know, I still have family members and friends and others. We told them all along, these are the folks that they do not obey by their own words. Mm -hmm. They do not stick to their own words. They'll tell you at the moment, based on what they think is going to get the attention of the Americans, mm -hmm. especially American officials. And and I've, I've told a number of times, many times, in many occasions, say, look, they, they, they just, they're just giving you uh, literally some hot air. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing to be trusted. Uh, these people are not trustworthy. So when, they, yet, when their spokesperson it, said the United States should trust us, should we? Absolutely. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. not, sir. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Well, given an example, they have been in, in around for since uh, early 90s. Mm -hmm. You go back to their history. They made a thousand more than that the, uh, different promises to the Afghan people. Yep. And yet they the very next hour they went back and literally destroyed that promise. So how can you just, you know, a, 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 a wolf puts a, a clothing of a sheep, does not make them a sheep, mm -hmm. no matter how they look. And that's the, the sad reality of the situation. And we see the consequences. You know, American, uh, I don't know. Our American politicians, I, they're not naive, but I don't know what, what 
what's behind it. So they knew. They knew better than this. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Mullah Akbar. He's the owner of Cafe Istanbul in the heights of Albuquerque, but he's also a refugee from Afghanistan back in the, you remember the name Mujahideen from way, way back, Correct. right? We've been at yeah. this a long, long time. Uh, Mullah, um, what are you hearing from your friends over there about the possibilities of getting out? Is a door just fundamentally closed here? Do they feel confident they can get out through some other means outside of this particular airport? You know, I, I think uh, this particular uh, incident this morning or this explosion, mm -hmm. the, this may close that that window of opportunity for those um, Afghans who are desperate to get out of the get out of Afghanistan. Look, if if people were not desperate, why would they put themselves in in harm's way, knowing that this is extremely dangerous? We mm -hmm. saw what happened in uh, a week or two ago. People literally. Uh, hang on to the aircraft as it was flying right and they fall from the sky they know these risks because they are they're afraid the alternative is worse than that mm -hmm. and so um uh, you know i'm really afraid i it really scares me that this particular event this morning or this explosion this morning is going to um close that door of opportunity for thousands of others still remaining uh, trapped in afghanistan in kabul but I'm hopeful that, you know, after all the dust settles and then all the, you know, cleanup uh, is taken care of, there may be some opportunity to continue this. But I, in the near future, I think that opportunity might be uh, closed uh, as of th this morning, our time and uh, last evening, their time. That's right. Um, is, it your, is it your view that in order to fix what we've got now, do you think we'd have to go back in with coalition forces and have a fight on our hands with the Taliban to get to get all the Afghans we need to get out who have helped uh, the U.S. over time? You know, honestly, based on my own experience, sir, based on knowing what I know, worked in that country, knowing the culture and knowing these, these folks that we've been dealing for over um, a better part of the two decades, mm -hmm. I think there is no other alternative. There is no other alternative other than, again, making that enormous amount of sacrifice by the Western government, led by the United States, to go back and clean this up. Will that happen? I don't know. Th this is going to be depending on our uh, current politician and future politician. Yeah. How big is the Afghan community here in Albuquerque? I'm curious uh, what, what you've seen grow over your time here. Oh, it has grown. Back in the 19, uh, mid 90s, you know, we're about. Uh, 52, maybe 70 families. Now, uh, I want to say close to 400 family or more. So it has definitely grown quite a bit. Yes, mm. yes. Right. What do you attribute that to? What, what, what was, I mean, beyond the obvious need to get out of Afghanistan, why Albuquerque? Why, why are we so attractive? I think there were a number of different cases uh, or different uh, issues. Number one, I think uh, uh, people, like Jeff said earlier, uh, when they come in, if they knew someone in different parts of the country, mm -hmm. they tend to gather around those individuals because, uh, number one, you know the language, you know the ways around. They can call upon you and say, hey, how do I do this? How do I do that? That, that makes them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, uh, in, in certain ways, Albuquerque uh, is, uh, resembles certain part of Afghanistan, not Kabul, obviously. Kabul is much higher elevation mm -hmm. uh, but other parts of afghanistan like the southern afghanistan it's very flat desert hot uh north uh, part of the north is like that so it's 
some feels like this is more like home. Uh, others feel like, you know, being close to someone they know they trust, it makes them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, other times, there are other states, they simply don't have room. They'll say, you know, whoever can be able to uh, welcome these folks and please, you know, uh, uh, go ahead and do so. And um, our state uh, leadership has always been a welcoming. And for that, we're really grateful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any, is there anything you're doing personally at the shop? Are you taking volunteer stuff at the Cafe Istanbul? I'm curious what's happening in your store. Has it become a centerpiece for Afghan folks to come and talk about these things? Um, I haven't. I haven't done yet. But yeah. I've been in fact about that uh, to uh, set up uh, and talk to the community, uh, Afghan community here, and maybe set up a, a place where people can come in and and talk about, but also, you know, call call us or come and ask for assistance. You know, for, for right. example, the Lutheran uh, services or, or other organization here in town where we may be able to uh, access to those so we can refer them to or we can say, you know, here's a number or here's an address or, you know, folks, whatnot. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, find a way to um, ask my community and others here say, hey, we're accepting donations as, you know, maybe furniture for the house or uh, mm-hmm. cookware for the kitchen, that kind of stuff. So I've been thinking about that, but I haven't started it. I think we may start that hopefully in the near, very near future. Mm-hmm. I got a last question for you because I know you're running a business there. You got to get back to it. But I can't help but be excited for women and girls coming to the United States and having an opportunity to do what they've been building towards doing all these past few years before these Taliban folks are going to come in and ruin everything. I'm curious your thought on that. Have you talked to women, Afghan women, who are here in the States or here in Albuquerque, I should say, about that? Because that seems to me that's a brilliant opportunity. Uh, d- uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, certainly we have, uh, we had a small rally, we meaning the African community had a small rally this past Saturday at the Civic Plaza. And there were a number uh, of uh, young, young women um, and they uh, expressed their obviously thoughts. And like you said, we are um, optimistic, hopefully, especially for those folks who can get out and for those young women, uh, they can, uh, you know, achieve their goals, achieve uh uh, who they wanted to be, uh, rather than being forced to stay home, uh, be a housewife, or you know, some some uh, uh, meaningless job or some something of that nature. Um, you know, we're very optimistic mm-hmm. and hopeful for those folks. Uh, the young ladies are coming, and hopefully, they do something good for themselves, for their community, and hope. You know, who knows? Maybe down the road, they can go back and, and contribute back to the Afghan society as well. So. We're very um, uh, optimistic about that. I love that. That's a great final note. Mula Akbar, owner of Cafe Istanbul, Afghan refugee who's been here in Albuquerque for quite a number of years. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And may I, may I put an offer out there to catch up with you at some point, maybe in a couple of weeks, and see how things are going? Absolutely. Absolutely. Please, okay. anytime. I appreciate and if you're that. In the, we would welcome you to stop by for a, a cup of uh, Turkish coffee here at the Cafe Istanbul. Ah, I love me some Turkish coffee. I, I, I can there do that. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Yep. Really appreciate that. Up. All right, guys, good stuff there. We're, we're going to continue to follow this story about how the resettlement issue is going into Mexico. Uh, there's a lot to consider. I'm, I'm just very optimistic. We'll see how that goes. Now, 
Friday night, we've got some good stuff. We take on this subject actually with a great panel. Senator Dee Dee Feldman is with us. It, I just, she had some great things to say right off the top of my head about this very issue. So, and my friend Michael Bird's back as well, as well as Dan Boyd from the Albuquerque Journal. So, we will see you Friday night at 7, but until the next Facebook Live, take care. We'll round things out where we started with the line opinion panel. Uh, the news that you probably saw recently for the fourth straight year, New Mexico leads the country in pedestrian deaths. And the Department of Transportation has researched the topic and come out with a massive report, several hundred pages long, uh, looking at the problem and looking at possible solutions. And a lot of them have to do with urban and rural planning and how walkable our communities are. We also see that uh, communities of color, minorities, are some of the larger number of victims of pedestrian fatalities in the state. Uh, so it's an important issue and one really needs some serious consideration. The timing may be good for that with the infrastructure bill. Uh, that recently passed and money coming our way that could maybe go towards things like sidewalks or um, street safety improvements. Uh, and so lots to dig into here. And we'll do that right now with the line opinion panel. Is New Mexico ready to turn the tide when it comes to pedestrian safety? The state has had the most pedestrian deaths for four years running now. But the State Department of Transportation just unveiled a massive safety action plan they hope will make a difference. Now that report, while several hundred pages long, was lacking in a lot of specifics, but some of the ideas mentioned included new education campaigns for DWI and distracted drivers, getting feedback from vulnerable communities, re-examining speed limits, and increasing the use of pedestrian signals. Are more PSA campaigns, uh, Michael, really going to move the needle on this? Is that the problem here? <laughs> That, 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 that's a very good question. Um, um, I, I mean, I, it's noted that, that Native, again, again once again, on, on, the, on, the, on the downside, that Native Americans are the, are, the, are the significant percentage of the populations being killed. That's right. Um, as in, in these pedestrian auto accidents, or I, don't, I wouldn't call them accidents even. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think... You know, like everything else, this really is a multi-layered, multi-dimensional issue, and um, I'd say if it if nothing if it hasn't been addressed in the past, uh, in the past, um, I can only hope that there really is a real commitment mm -hmm. with with a real strategic plan with with goals and objectives. I th one of the things I certainly think we could do is um, is is look at the issue of speeding and, uh -huh. and alcohol. Yeah. Um, and I know that in the city they've been talking about um, bringing back the vehicles that can monitor speed or uh, intersection mm -hmm. speed. And I, I mean, I'm a proponent of that. I, I think here in New Mexico, um, uh, we, we really need to do something about reducing speed. I mean, just, just since I've been back, mm -hmm. um, I, I noted this before I left and I'm still noting it, the number of people who speed, the number of people who uh, take take the opportunity that when they see a, a, a yellow light to hit the gas to get through the yeah. red um, is significant. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and that results in a, so I think one of the things we certainly could do is, is, is do something about re reducing people's tendency to speed 
and, and, and finding them in a meaningful way so that people take note of that. And, and then let's measure that and see if that's, that's one thing that I think could, could be done mm-hmm. sooner than later. Yeah, that's a good point there. Um, Didi, one interesting, to, interesting to me, one of the big issues in the DOT report was a lack of sidewalks. And this has been an issue for a long time. We've talked about this in this community. Is this an opportunity to take advantage of the newly passed infrastructure bill? Are we at a risk of losing an opportunity there to make some physical differences? Should we, should we be jumping on this? Well, I think the, the lack of sidewalks is, is one part of this multi-layered uh, problem. Mm-hmm. But um, the, bigger, the bigger question is just how pedestrian unfriendly our cityscapes are. I mean, even if there is a sidewalk on Coors, mm-hmm. who's walking on it? Thank you. Um, and um, this, is, this is a problem uh, in terms of COVID as well. When you have these huge four-lane highways, and most of these pedestrian deaths are crashes that res- are on big highways, the, the biggest ones on Coors, Central, um, and uh, and Cerritos Road mm-hmm. uh, in Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we have to maybe use our infrastructure money to address, uh, address speeding in a different way by reconfiguring our highways, by making them two-lane rather than uh, four-lane, uh, by making more crosswalks, more blinking lights, this is a personal issue to me. Mm-hmm. There was a, a 65-year-old VA nurse uh, killed on Indian School, yeah. which is a huge four-lane, was a huge four-lane uh, street in the North Valley of Albuquerque. She was killed in June, uh, crossing the street uh, with, a, with a cup of coffee in her hand, just as many of us have. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and who knows whether it was chalked up to inattention on her part. Many of these pedestrian deaths are blamed on the pedestrians, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yet this, this highway that's in the middle of this residential neighborhood encourages people just getting out of COVID, yeah. wanting to go places, wanting to go fast. Uh, having, and you know, there are fewer people that are taking public transportation, so there are more walkers out. That's now. right. That's right. Um, and that that makes the situation worse. You know, Dan, interestingly, the state study looked at nearly 4000 pedestrian crashes uh, through 2012 through 2018 and found that 79 percent of pedestrian crashes left a person injured and 12 percent uh, killed someone. Pedestrian error, to Didi's point, contributed to 25 percent in alcohol drug use contributed to 24 percent. Driver inattention contributed 18 percent and motorist or pedestrian failure to yield contributed 10 to 10%. Didi said, Didi said, it's very complicated. The report doesn't single out one specific issue about how, what could be fixed here. Uh, did you glean anything out of it that says, okay, we know now what the problem is, now we know how to fix it? No, I, I, think, I think you're right, and I think Michael talked about this, that it is a multifaceted issue. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, just anecdotally seeing the number of drivers on their phones especially around Santa Fe when nobody can find where the plaza is, you know, and mm-hmm. pulled over to the side of the road looking. Uh, you know, it, it, it makes me nervous sometimes even just walking around. Um, I think part of it, too, is on, on some of those bigger roads, like Didi was mentioning, uh, you know, it can be hard to make it across the crosswalk in the amount of time you have on a green right. bike. Um, so yeah. I, I think maybe some of these urban planners or 
local folks and state DOT folks need to kind of take a closer look at that. Um, I, I think better signing, better lighting, things like that would help. But I don't think that's going to solve all the problems here. I think, you know, a lot of these other issues are going to also have to be addressed. And, yeah. and a lot of these are uh, longstanding chronic issues that aren't, you know, yep. easily remedied. Fairly said. Hey, Michael, distance also came up again and again in the report. It's hard to walk to and from various destinations in New Mexico. It's just not practical. You know, that would point back to public transportation, which was just mentioned, which is not really addressed at great length in the DOT report. What are we still missing when it comes to helping people navigate our, our spread out geography? You know, getting from A to B, something's not working here. Well, you know, there, there's that concept of social determinants of health that talks about what it is that cities need and people need, well, people need mm -hmm. to, to, to live well and thrive. And, you know, and, and transportation systems are, are critical to that. And so, um, you know, I mean, we may have some, uh, some unique challenges because of the, the you know, uh, because we're in New Mexico. But I think that there, that we just have to, you know, have bring our, bring folks together and let's come up with some some viable solutions to address those issues mm -hmm. we're not new york we're not we're not la we're not i mean they have their own problems right um and and one of the things sometimes i think we get caught up on is we're i mean we've got some major issues in new mexico but we are not the only ones right. that have issues That's all right. of these all of these locales some of their issues make ours um, dare I say, in some ways, seem um, more manageable if we just come together, I think. Mm -hmm. Senator, um, I, got, I got a little number here for you as well. The highest percentage of folks that were struck by vehicles were 21 to 30 years old. Does that, does, does that say something to you? Is there something about that age group that we need to hone in on? Well, as, it, as, as Michael and everyone has been saying, it's a multifaceted issue mm -hmm. um, uh, involving alcohol, uh, involving the design of our cities. And I, I do, I kind of disagree a little bit with Michael because Albuquerque is in particular is a sprawled out city yeah. as opposed to ones that are denser. Um, it's less... Um, public transportation doesn't fit us quite as well. And if you look at public transportation in other cities, people that use it are young people like the group that you have mentioned and also people with disabilities. Ah. And um, so uh, the fact that uh, it, it's a great hardship on, on those age groups and those groups, the fact that we are a sprawled out city, but there's a whole planning department that is, is devoted to structure urban planning and structural solutions mm -hmm. like putting roads on diets the road diet right and using landscaping using lighting to solve these problems and to make it more usable for those uh those two populations that was the idea at central just to squeeze it down to one lane to to reduce the speed michael i got a fundamental question here might it help to think of this as a public health emergency hmm. I would, yes, I, I would call it a public health emergency. Mm -hmm. You have people dying in the numbers and in, in our given like four our, years in a row. How bad does it have to be to be an emergency? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Gene, in addition to what mm -hmm. you said about the age group, mm -hmm. also uh, there is an ethnic disparity and a social disparity uh, where these uh, where these accidents are helping. I look uh, are happening. I looked at the map, and it is the international district. Yes. Um, and uh, along central, and the victims are uh, usually people of color, 
um, that um, don't have a car. That's a good point there. Hey guys, a big thanks to our line opinion panelists for your research and thoughts this week. Be sure to keep up with the show throughout the week on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, that will do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Coming up in our next episode, we'll meet the newest member of the state legislature. She is Kay Bonka, and she was appointed this week by the Bernalillo County Commission to serve out the rest of the term for Representative Cheryl Williams Stapleton, who resigned recently amidst some scandal. And Kay is also the first female Asian American to serve in the roundhouse so history in the making we wanted to meet her a little bit more and find out how what her priorities are and her interest in jumping into this unique situation which you may remember is the second time we've had this in recent months melanie stansbury who ran in the special election to replace deb holland in the first u.s congressional district uh, had to be replaced in the legislature as well the bernalillo county commission that task fell to them and they picked Pamela Herndon. Now it's happened again in House District 19 with Kay Bunka. And so we want to uh, introduce you to her. Also find out about an interesting renewable energy project in New Mexico. This has nothing to do with solar plants or wind farms. This has to do with how you get that power to other places, but it's not without some controversy. So we'll talk about that all coming up on the next episode which will be out Monday. Until then, we hope you have a terrific weekend. We thank you, as always, for listening, tuning in, taking us with you wherever you go. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. <laughs>